The good life, that's what we're talking about today. Um, everybody, everybody's seeking it. I hope you're not here seeking the bad life. That would be weird. Um, in chapter 3, we just read this, Thomas read this in verse 10, as, as Peter quotes Psalm 34. He begins, whoever desires to love life and see good days. And, and the whoever means everybody. Um, nobody says, I desire to hate life and see bad days. Uh, that's, not, that's not anybody. So the question is, what makes this good life? What makes good days? And what does it mean to, to love life? Is it defined by what you do? By the things that you are, accomplish and attain? Is it limited to what you have and possess? Is it a product of your education or your upbringing or your, your, where, where you live or who's in office? Is, are these the things that make for a good life? You know, the pursuit of the good life takes many different forms for, for people, in particular in our context. For some, it's pursuing the, the American dream. So you grow up, you get a job, you find a spouse, you buy a house, you have 2.4 kids and a golden retriever, and you retire in Florida to fish and play golf, uh, or something like that. So, so if if you get to have some version of that, and I realize your version of that may differ, uh, you've if if you get to attain that, though, you've managed to have a good life, the good life. For others, it's all about fun. It's about pleasure. It's living for the weekends. It's having. The vacation home on the lake and all the little water toys to go with it. It's, it's, it's adventure. It's travel. It's those kinds of things. It's, it's, it's the experiences. For some, it's about accumulating wealth and possessions. For others, it's fame. Trying to get celebrity status to be known by others. For some, it's education. Getting as many letters after your name as you can possibly, uh, possibly attain. For others, it's more short-sighted. It's just having the next video game. Um, it's seeing the latest movie. It's going to the next party. It's getting the next high. So it's much more short-sighted. There's, there's nothing wrong with most of those things in and of themselves, minus getting high and having four-tenths of a kid. I don't know how you do that. But, um, but if your pursuit of the good life is ultimately directed at any of those things, it will all be futility. Solomon's life made this abundantly clear. If you know anything about Solomon of the book of Ecclesiastes, he pursued the good life. He pursued personal fulfillment by, and he looked for it in knowledge and, and alcohol and materialism and nature and, and power and money and music and sex and on and on and on. If the good life could be found in pursuing all the pleasures of the world, Solomon would have found it. But in the end, at the end of the day, he, he, he found all of that to be vanity of vanities. Ecclesiastes says. But the, but the one common denominator between all those ideas of what the good life is and, and could be and should be, there's this that, that runs through all of it. It's, it involves in some way the absence of pain and suffering. It's ease. It's, the good life is about admiration from people, not opposition of people. It's about relaxation, not resistance. It's about fun, not affliction. Serenity, not suffering. Being comfortable, not being troubled. But as we'll see today, the truly good life can be known in the midst of suffering and difficulties and pain and even persecution. 
The, but the whole theme of First Peter, hope is alive, and this is what we this is what's framing our whole study as we try to put our arms around this whole letter and and we begin look back in chapter one verses three to five verses we've read so many times already in the study. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so there's this wonderful hope of this coming inheritance that God has promised to all those who have been born again. And it's this hope and this blessing of heaven. So we've said, suffer now, but there is this unbelievable and eternal good life later. And we have that prospect. And so, we know that to be true, but it may be tempting then to think that now, while we, as Peter describes us, while we live as sojourners and exiles in this world and our lives are characterized by suffering, that we have to just kind of grimly bear our present afflictions while we wait for this future prospect of glory. But Peter tells us, no, that's not it. It's a living hope. Even, even though you suffer greatly now, you can know incredible goodness and blessing and joy now, right in the middle of your difficulty and your pain and your loss. Many of you, my dear family, church family, you, you have walked through and are walking through incredibly difficult trials. I'm thinking if we sang those Songs, though I walk through the valley, I'm, I, some of you came to mind as we're singing that. I know I, I can hear your voices stand out, thankfully, but uh, unless you're right behind me or something, uh, Lana's is a pleasure to hear. Uh, Eric, uh, well, no, I was <laughs> no, <it's> kidding. <laughs> no, but I, I think of some some of the things you guys are walking through and have walked through in recent and distant years, relational trials and health issues and just deep painful losses and suffering but listen and you guys have testified this you can love life and you can see good days in the midst of those circumstances because biblically speaking blessing isn't defined by our circumstances but is oriented to God who is always good and who does not change and so we can know this and this is and it's not just something we know individually. As we talk about the good life, we tend to think about me, my family, and what I want out of life. But it's not just individually. Peter's not writing to singular Christians. This is not a letter that was, you know, just sent around and forwarded to emails to individual inboxes. This was, he's writing to believers in community, to the church. And so church, can I, can I speak candidly with you for a moment? We have been walking through a very challenging season as a church family over the last three or so years in particular. I'm not saying it's unique in the whole history of our church, but it, is, it has been intense in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to recount all the different types of, of, of hardships and the, the dimensions of the difficulties that we face together. That's, that's not necessary. But, but there can be some fatigue in a church when... when, when when trials just kind of seem to accumulate they ha- the way they have in recent years. And, and we don't sit in a pile of tears and just say, oh, woe is us, this is so hard, this is so bad. 
But it's okay and it's good to give voice to pain and, and, and to acknowledge it, not just kind of plaster on a happy face. The, the Psalms give us, give us plenty of examples of how to properly lament. But what I, I want you to see is that our hope for good days, not just individually, but as a church, it's not simply the prospect of trouble-free days in the near or distant future. Trust me, that is a temptation for this pastor to think like that. Our hope is not that all the challenges and the problems will, will just evaporate. And then we can go on with the good life as a church. And until then, we're just kind of consigned to you know, frustration and gloom. That's No, that's not it. Our hope is not that things will be like the good old days once again soon. No. That's not how Peter encourages these believers in these churches who are, who are walking through the fire. That's not what we need. But even, in the, even if the days ahead for any church, they prove more difficult than the ones that they've already been through, we can know now the goodness of God's blessing. We do know it. I mean, I just think in our own context, we, we've been ridiculously blessed by God as a church, even maybe especially over the past three years as we've walked through this. I, I mean, just recount a few of the ways. One is the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit among us. And I realize it's hard to always see that, but the Comforter has been at work in our lives and in our church. He's ministering to us, not in pretend, not in fluffy kind of ways, in real, internal, significant ways. He has held us fast, brothers and sisters. And He is, and He will. And so in in, in countless ways that we don't recognize, God has been at work directly in us through His Spirit. He, he, He has blessed us with the love and care for one another that's been manifested in this church and is displayed over and over and over again. You show up, you help, you pray, you call, you write, you cook, you listen, you weep, you rejoice. It's not all coordinated by the elders and the staff. It's just genuine, thoughtful, spontaneous body life. And I've seen it. And you have. And you've been recipients of this. God's, I've seen God's, we see God's blessing in His provision for our financial needs and, and, and through generous giving. Our needs continue to be well supplied. And that's His mercy. Missionaries are supported and ministries are funded and facilities are maintained. We just dropped two new air conditioner units here so you can enjoy this nice cool, cool air. But we did, but God provided through His people. Staff are provided for. We see His blessing in just servant-hearted people using their gifts in the church. Many times unnoticed. Volunteers continuing to serve faithfully and quietly. Teaching Sunday school, holding babies and reading to preschoolers and hosting small groups and coordinating ministries and cutting grass and, and setting up and serving coffee and refreshments on Sundays and playing instruments and singing and counseling and keeping us safe and secure on Sundays with our team of folks and and mixing our sound and welcoming our guests and countless other ways, the formal ways that happen on Sunday mornings and the informal ways where you are just ministering to one another throughout the week. I'm thankful for that. Thankful for our staff, our office staff, our pastoral staff, our our deacons, our elders. We could keep going on and on and on. So more than focusing on the, the difficulties we've 
walk through. I, I, I want us to see the goodness and faithfulness of God in our midst. God has held us fast and He is at work. And so we can, we can vocalize some of those hurts and pains, but we mostly need to emphasize and revel in the many streams, fresh streams of God's mercy that have, have been feeding into us. And we want to acknowledge that. And we move forward. We com- we're compelled by the love and grace of God. We're, we're gripped by the mandate that He's given us to glorify God and make disciples of Christ at home and abroad. And we press on in that work. And so, I just say all that because there is this perception that we can so easily have that the good life as for an individual, for a church, is, is, is dependent upon circumstances. And it is not. And this passage makes that clear. Psalm 34 that we read makes that crystal clear as David sitting alone in the cave fearing for his life. So the big idea, all right, let's get back into the text. And let me, let, let me just state the kind of the summary statement for this passage. The big idea is this. The sojourning church, we've been talking about sojourning husbands and wives and, and servants and citizens. And here, the sojourning church, it blesses others in ways no one else can. Because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. So the sojourning church, we're, we, we, we are suffering exiles, yet we, we get to bless others, one another, unbelievers, in ways no one else can because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. Look at the text with me. Verse 8, chapter 3, begins with finally. You may be thinking, finally? I'm looking at my Bible. There are still two whole chapters left after we finish chapter 3 in First Peter. What is this? Is this like a preacher finally? You know, one more thing and then like 15 minutes later. Uh, but this finally, what he's doing is he's, he's giving a kind of a summary statement of, of, of what he's been saying. So in the previous paragraphs, he's been, Peter's been addressing these particular people and their particular roles in the church. And so he's talked about citizens and leaders and servants and masters and wives and husbands. Now, finally, he's, he's addressing everyone. He's making this summary statement. And so he says, finally, all of you, whether you're an elder in this church or an usher or a nursery worker or a lawnmower, whether you've been here 40 years or whether you've been here for four weeks, whether you're a man or woman, whether you're young or old, all of you, these, these words apply. These words are for us, church, for all of us. And what it goes on to say in, to us, finally, it's, it's not so hard to understand. It doesn't require a lot of explanation. I mean, we, we, we don't like, man, what in the world does um, uh, sympathy mean? No, we understand sympathy. It's not going to require a whole lot of explanation. But it is difficult to live out to apply this in our lives as a church, isn't it? John Stott uh, said along these lines with this in mind, he said, the problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, His own special treasure, the covenant community to whom He has committed Himself forever, engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace, and pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. That's the ideal. But in reality, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals. No offense. Uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, 
concerned more for our maintenance and our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing, needing constant rebuke and exhortation. So, so this, is, this is the reality we have to work with, and this is why we need the Spirit's help to these truths to really work in us in exhortation. So again, the big idea, the sojourning church blesses others in ways no one else can because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. And so how can the sojourning church, can, can a church that, that suffers in this world that opposes it live the good life? And the answer is absolutely. And we're going to see how. First thing, sojourning church pursues the good life in close community. It pursues the good life in close community. If you're looking for the good life apart from close biblical community, you're looking for it in the wrong place. This isn't about you and your own, uh, uh, on your own, loving life and seeing good days. That's not what Peter is calling for. It's not how can my life be a richly blessed one by myself. The good life Peter talks about is a shared life. It's, the good life isn't found in some island resort in the Caribbean. The good life is found as close as your local church. And so this is, this is why in this context of the good life, Peter starts by urging these strong relationships in the church. So he says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So let's just walk through this quickly. Verse First thing we need to do is, is we need to be agreeable. Have unity of mind. Literally be of the same mind. It, it means we're on the same page. We're working toward the same goal. It, it, it does not mean that we're just all clones of one another. It, it, that we agree on absolutely everything. That's not the point. Use, that we use the same expressions and vocabulary. That we, that we wear the same clothes and we have the same haircut. Now that's... You can match mine, but I can't match yours. So you're going to have to get on board. If that's, it's not that we eat the same diet or drive the same cars or, or that kind of thing. We 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 we're not clones. We we disagree. Disagreement is not sin. We will disagree on many things: politics and Bible translations and schooling options and what's acceptable entertainment and preferred worship style and even theology and Bible interpretation. There will be disagreements. Unity of mind doesn't mean uniformity of mind. It's not the point. But but what he's saying is is, is be agreeable. Have have pursue the same mind. Work towards getting on the same page. Disagreeing just to be disagreeable is toxic in a church. Constant tension, strife, debate, it will suck the life out of us. And so Jesus cares a lot about this. He cares about unity of mind. You remember, uh, at the end of his life, as he's, as he's about to be arrested and he's going to be crucified, he prays for this very thing. He prays that we may be one, repeatedly, in John 17. And so implicit in the gospel message itself is a message of reconciliation between, between us and God, between us and one, and, and one another. And so therefore, for the sake of the gospel, we need to live in harmony with one another. We need, to, we need to be of the same mind. We need to be agreeable. And there's blessing that comes for us in the church when we live like this. And in the Old Testament, Psalm 133.1, we know this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's the good life. In Proverbs 17.1, it's in a different context, speaking of a home, he says, better is a dry morsel in quietness 
with it than a house full of feasting with strife. If I could just translate that into the church, we could say better is a small church with few resources and love and harmony than a big church with riches and strife. And so, so this is the good, if we want the good life, we need to be on the, we need to pursue the same mind. Secondly, we don't just need to be, uh, be agreeable, we need to be affected. He says have sympathy. It means we share, just the same mind, but we share the same feelings. We feel with others. We feel their pain. We feel their joy. We identify with their joys and their sorrows and with one another's. So the opposite of sympathy is not necessarily, it's not to be, to be mean. You, and so you think, well, I'm not mean, so I'm sympathetic. No, the opposite of sympathy is to be apathetic, to be indifferent, to be withdrawn, to be focused on self. And so, so sympathy, it's not just, it's not just telling others, I, I know how you feel. It's, it's sitting with them and it's listening to them. It's not, it's not, um, just coming alongside them in a way that puts the focus back on yourself. I know we're so, we're so slick about this. You know, somebody's pouring their heart and we say, oh, that reminds me of me. And so let me tell you a story of how I walk through the same kind of thing. And so we, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. It's, it's Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's feeling with others. And there's great blessing in being part of a sympathetic church family, community of believers. We don't suffer alone. We don't celebrate alone. We do this together. Uh, I was appreciative of, of Vic Lemp's email this week and his update and thankful to the Lord for his mercies there. But I, I noted just his expression of gratitude for the way church family have ministered to his family. And you've been sympathetic towards them as they walk through this trial. And I commend you for that. May we excel even more. He says, be brotherly. Have brotherly love. We've been adopted into God's family by virtue of the new birth. We were brothers and sisters with one another in Christ and will be bound to one another for eternity. And so the bond that we have with one another is not casual or shallow. It is deep and blood-bought. And so we're not to treat one another like we're acquaintances who have sort of similar interests. So we just show up once a week and and kind of bounce off one another. No, we're to treat one another like family. It means we're committed to, to doing good to one another. We're, 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 instead of always trying to be at rivalry with one another, we, we, we have brotherly love. He says we have a tender heart. I would say this way, be, be gutsy, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the, the idea of this word is to have strong bowels, guts. <laughs> the idea is feelings, emotions, affections. The, the Greeks, they... View, we view the emotions as coming from the heart. And so we have Valentine's Day, we draw a heart that doesn't look like a heart, but that's what we envision a heart looking like. And so, but the Greeks envision the, the viscera, the organs, the internal organs as being where the emotions come from. And so in the, in the Greek sort of way, we say be gutsy. To, to be tender hearted is to be moved by others. To have compassion for them. To be sensitive to the needs of others. I mean, Peter himself knew what it was like for the Lord to, to be tender-hearted towards him. You remember at the end of Jesus' time on earth, uh, well, before that Jesus had predicted that Peter would, would uh, fall away on the night that he was betrayed, but Peter said, no, that's not going to happen. Um, he said, everyone else will fall away because of you, but I will never, ever, ever, ever fall away. 
And Jesus says, no, truly on this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, nope, not happening. Even if I have to die with you, I will not, not deny you. And then we know what happens. He does the very thing that Jesus said he would do. But, but do you remember how Jesus deals with Peter? He, we have no record of Jesus laying into him, rebuking him, scolding him, just coming down on him to say, I told you so. You're so thick-headed. Instead, we see Jesus gently restoring him this heart of tenderness. Jesus is on the beach after the resurrection with Peter, and what does he say? He says, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep three times. And he's, he's reinstating Peter as a shepherd of the church. Yes, he failed, but Jesus restores him again, and he does it with his tender, tender heart. How this is needed in the church today. What a good life when the church is full of tender-hearted people. The last thing he says is, he says, have a, have a humble mind. Say this, just be low. Be low. This is so fundamental to a strong, healthy church family. Pride destroys churches. It destroys lives. But humility will, will bring the good life to a church, and even in the midst of suffering. And so, what does this look like? Well, many things, and I'm not going to exhaust it, but the, the humble Christian is one who's going to be quick to confess their sins. He will, he, he will be a person who's easy to confront. He, 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 is, he, he, he understands his weaknesses and his limitations, and he knows them well. The humble Christian seeks help from others. The humble Christian is focused on serving others. The humble Christian learns about others before making assessments of them. The humble Christian willingly defers to other people and sets the interests of others before their own. You, you can see why a church that's full of humble Christians is, is going to be a, a blessed place to be. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Peter will make this very clear. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so the, hum, the, the humble church enjoys His grace and favor of God on them. So, that's the first point. The, pri, the, the, the sojourning church, it pursues the good life in close community. But we know how this is. It's not like, alright, we, we've got it. We've got close community. We're done. Next, No, relationships in churches, they're like gardens. They need constant cultivation and weeding. And so I just ask you, are there any of these five exhortations that Peter gives us and that we walk through, are there any that you particularly need to see cultivated in your own life that may be lacking as it pertains to your part in the community? And you can't do any of these alone. These are all assuming biblical community. But are there any of these that need to be cultivated? Or secondly, are there relational weeds in your heart that need to be pulled and uprooted? Do you need to go to somebody and ask forgiveness? Do you need to reaffirm reaffirm a relationship uh, and your love for someone here? I mean, look, look around you. Look at the... That these people in this room and those that aren't able to be here this morning but are part of this flock, these are the very people God has called you to love and live in close community with. 
This is who we, by God's grace, get to pursue and know the good life with. That's a blessing. No matter what we walk through together, we get to do this together. We get to know the grace and blessing of God together, like in ways that nobody else can. No. And I would encourage, this is a practical application. I meant to announce this earlier, but maybe say it here. We have a, a meeting right after Sunday school. It'll be a brief meeting, just as a way for us to 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 gather ourselves together for those that, that if we can pull more people into what it means to welcome one another even on Sundays in terms of Sunday hospitality, not just guests who may come in the doors, but one another. We have people. We're talking about this in prayer this morning. There, there, there's people that that. Um, are kind of on the fringe of church that we need to pull back in. There's people that are that want to be in the middle of the church, but they they they, they feel invisible in the church. And so we have an opportunity to welcome and to love one another in the church, and so we want to grow in that. So I encourage all of you, anybody, stay for that for a few minutes after Sunday school, meet in the youth room. Is that correct? And and meet together. But just as a practical application of what we're talking about. So that's the first thing. The sojourning church it pursues the good life through close community. Second. The sojourning church preserves the good life through godly responses to evil. So remember the big idea, the sojourning church blesses others in ways that no one else can because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else has. And so we bless one another, we bless others in the sense of one another in the church, and we also bless others outside of the church in ways no one else can, even those who do evil against us. And so in verse 9, he, 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 there's a little bit of a transition. He's redirecting our attention, I, I believe, from the kind of the home fires of the church family, those warm house fires. Now we're, we're redirected to the hostile threats of the world outside the door. So he says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And we... We see evil and reviling, and I hope if you've been with us, you should your mind should perk back, and you should be flipping in your Bibles back to chapter two, because we've we this is these are echoes of what we've already seen in those difficult relationships that started back in in chapter two, verse eleven. And so you had cruel emperors and governors who 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 that, that pressured and persecuted God's people. You had bad masters who were harsh and unjust towards their servants towards Christian slaves. You have husbands who were willfully disobedient to the gospel and wives who, who were called to submit to that authority. You have, And then right in the middle of that whole section, Peter highlights this towering example of the sinless Christ who, who endured the insults of, his evil, of, of evil enemies. Look back at verse 21 of chapter 2 with me. Let's see it again. We've read these verses several times in the last few weeks. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, there's a word, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so, as pilgrims in this world, as a, as a sojourning church in this world, we will face opposition from the world. So what will we do? How do we respond to that? Do we give it back to them? How do we respond to attacks from the outside? And Peter's counsel is very simple in verse 9. 
And when we experience evil from others, we're not to retaliate in kind. If people insult us, we're not supposed to insult back. We are instead to speak kindly. This is so contrary to our nature, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, if people hit us, we want to hit them back. People cut us off in traffic, we want to get ahead of them and cut them back off. I'm just, I've heard of people like that. I don't know. If people curse us, we want to curse them back. If people gossip about us, we want to speak behind their backs. If, if people indict our motives, we want to indict theirs. And to the other side, if people are good to us, oh, then we'll be good to them. We're, we just want to reciprocate. We just want to, to pay back in kind. D. Edmund Hebert said, says on this, Our natural tendency is to return evil in full measure or more. Thus evil is only multiplied. To break the vicious chain, someone must voluntarily endure evil without retaliation. So that's what we're saying. But, but even that, hey, by the exercise of self-control, I know how to mumble under my breath, I'm not going to take that swing. I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm not going to say what I want to say. I'm not going to slam the door. I'm going to smile. I'm not going to throw anything. I'm not going to cuss. Whatever it is. But that's not enough. It's not what we're called to. Love is more than simply what we don't do. What does he say? On the contrary, bless what what does that look like peter peter knows what it looks like he learned it directly from jesus we we see this in a few places in in jesus teaching but it's in luke 6 27 and 28 love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you so peter has this in mind he says when you revile don't revile them in turn on the contrary bless and that, that's not pie in the sky, um, some kind of pie in the sky exhortation for Peter's reader. They're not living in utopia here. They, they, remember the context of the entire epistle. It comes during, this letter comes to them during a time of persecution and opposition, and it's only getting worse and growing. They're ostracized in their community. It comes during a time when, when they're being slandered as evildoers. We saw this in 1 Peter 2.12. Oh, there's not many things more painful than slander. <laughs> to have something spoken about, spoken about you which has no bearing of truth um, and, and with the intent of tearing you down and destroying your reputation. And you, there's, there's no defense for that. The only option is to retaliate or to do what no one else can do because we've been blessed by God in ways no one else can. And it's to bless it comes during a time when these Christians are suffering for the sake of righteousness. That's the very next passage we're going to look at in verse 14. And so, but okay, but I think we understand the idea of non-retaliation. And, but, but we find it difficult to understand how this can lead to the good life that Peter's talking about here. How, how, does, this, how does this relate to goodness and blessing and, and loving life and good days? Just absorbing slander and evil and blessing in return. How is that a good life? 
Well, what is it? Verse 9 makes this clear. He ties the blessing to, look at what he says, For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. <laughs> On the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. To bless, to be blessed. You think about what Peter's saying here. God has called us for a purpose. He's called us to be insulted. He's called us to be on the receiving end of all kinds of evil. And He's called us to respond differently than the world around us. To bless in ways nobody else can. He's called us rather than fighting for our rights to continue doing good to others and praying for them and blessing them. Forgiving them. And in so doing this, we will, we're called to obtain this blessing. We will know a joy. We know a blessing from God that, that the world can't know. We, a joy that cannot be comprehended by the world around us. And this is why he's going to say that in the next passage, we're going to see next week, we're going to have opportunities to testify to the hope that's in us. Because the world's just going to be scratching their heads. How is that possible? And so can this really happen? Well, we, we have examples of this in Scripture. We have example, the example in, in Acts, chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles are just being, being pummeled and flogged and beat up and threatened for preaching in the name of Jesus. And so they leave the presence of this religious council. And how do they leave? They leave rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Rejoicing. When, they, when they're experiencing persecution in the church, they rejoice. And then the writer of Hebrews says, you, 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 in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering, the seizure of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a lasting one. You joyfully take it all. This is just, it's okay, great. I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying they, they were like, this is amazing that our couch is gone, uh, you know, it was infested, it was dirty anyway and stained, we wanted a new one anyway. That's not the point. Just saying, they, they did this view to this greater possession, this lasting one. So we can know this. The good life isn't preserved by getting away from all opposition and reviling and evil and trouble and difficulty. The good life is preserved through godly responses to those things. That's what Peter says. And then how does he end this passage? He ends by opening up the hymn book. Everybody pull out your hymnal. Turn to Psalm 34. And he turns to the Psalter and he finds a song that drives his point home. That's what's happening in verses uh, 10 to 12 here. The Psalm 34, he go, his mind goes to Psalm 34 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, but the, but he, he goes to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a song for the sojourning church. And so it's good that we read this this morning together. So the last point, let me state it and then we'll walk through this, this passage, these verses together. Last thing, the sojourning church praises the God who gives good in life. And again, verse 10. He starts 4, and then he quotes Psalm 34 to, again, reinforce everything he said in verses 8 to 9. Now, Patrick read the inscription that's inspired by God earlier, Psalm 34, uh, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And so, some, just some background quickly, and, and uh, you go to 1 Samuel 21 to see the background 
of Psalm 34, the psalm we read earlier in the service. So David's on the run. He's fleeing from Saul, fleeing for his life. And, and he's, he's got no armor. He's got no people with him. He's alone. He's hungry. And he goes to this uh, city, Nob, and he finds a priest there that he knows, a Himalek, not a Bimelech, but a Himalek. And he, the, this priest gives him bread. And then David says, Please, I've got no weapons. I'm alone. I've got no armor. I've got nothing. Do you have any kind of sword or weapon that I can have? And he says, Yeah, actually, I do. And he goes and he brings this, you know, large weapon out and it's wrapped in this cloth and you, I, I just picture it playing out like in a movie scene or something and he wraps it sure enough it's the it's Goliath's sword the sword that when David uh, knocked Goliath down and he took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head with it and he says yes you can have this and so Goliath, David leaves. Only thing he's got on him is Goliath's sword and so he's, he's running and he ends up running to Gath and now that may mean nothing. You know, like, oh, whoa, no. But if it's okay if you don't gasp when I say Gath. Um, but Gath is, is what? So first thing, a few things. One, he's alone. Again, has nobody with him. Has nothing but this sword. Secondly, and Gath is this is this um, leading city uh, of the Philistine Empire. And so the Philistines were some of Israel's fiercest enemies. Uh, so he's going straight into the heart of enemy territory here when he goes to Gath. But more than that. Remember, he's carrying Goliath's sword. Well, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Goliath was like the, 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 the local town hero. He was their champion, this giant beastly man who, who was their, their, their poster boy for everything in Gath. And so here comes David, in coming into town, carrying the sword that he used to cut off Goliath's head. And so immediately, he's recognized. And so the servants of this king, Achish, they say to him, this is in 1 Samuel 21, 11 and 12, is not this David, the king of the land? Did, did they not sing to one another of him and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then it says, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So David knows his life is in great danger now. And I mean, he's, he's public enemy number one. Walking into town alone without defense. It would be like, this would have been like Osama bin Laden, you know, coming, uh, you know, fleeing some little skirmish in Afghanistan and showing up in downtown Manhattan. And I mean, you, you would see this is a wanted man. I mean, this, David is in trouble. He knows it. So he has he formulates this escape plan. And that's what's referenced in that inscription in Psalm 34, verse 13 of First Samuel 21. So he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Now children, I don't suggest this as a way to get out of trouble in your home. <laughs> These circumstances are unique. Um, don't try to get out of discipline this way. But you can only imagine the scene. So his beard is soaking wet with his saliva and he's defacing public property, making these marks on the gate, nonsensical marks. And, and again, strange sounds coming out of his mouth, probably glazed eyes that he's trying to look insane. But his performance is Oscar worthy. And it works. Achish said to his servants, verse 14, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so the Lord turns the heart of the king like channels of water. And, and, he, and he sends David away. And David escapes danger. And so 
First Samuel 22.1, the very next verse says, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And so it's there soon after he's joined by some of his companions. And it's in this cave, in, in relative obscurity, that David pins Psalm 34. And so one of the things, I, I, I say all that, and not just as filler, but I think it's important to understand what's so encouraging about, and probably to Peter's own heart as he, as he goes to Psalm 34, it's the context and the circumstances of that psalm. What David writes is, David has been delivered from great danger and he turns from deliverance to worship and praising God for His blessings and the, and the goodness of God that's evident in His life. But it's not as though David is, uh, you know, at some resort now. He's in a cave hiding for his life and outnumbered and he's a wanted man and he's in enemy territory. So it's not like life is trouble free now. But he still, he revels in the blessing and the goodness of God. And so the crux of the psalm, and we read this together, this is one of the verses we read together, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And so that's the heart of the psalm. And then he says in verse 11, Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you want to know what the goodness of God is upon your life, what it looks like, and how to have it? And then he goes on. Again, verse 12, Psalm 34, verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut the memory of them from off from the earth. And so, Peter quotes these song lyrics in our that are in our text this morning, to drive this point home that he's making in verses 8 and 9. It's like a preacher quoting a hymn or something, except this is an inspired hymn uh, from the Spirit. But one of the things you need to see, again, and I think this is important to see, is that the righteous aren't protected from troubles and trials and hardships and difficulties in life. They are protected through Troubles and hardships and difficulties in life. When troubles come, those of faith that cry to the Lord and the Lord delivers them. And so, again, in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It doesn't say, well, the righteous don't have any afflictions. No, no, the righteous live easy. They got it easy. No, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps them through it. He keeps all of His bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So Peter, he goes to the psalm. He says, "This is you want to know the good life. You want, you want, you want to know it. Here's a psalm about it. Here's a song about it. This is a song for the sojourning church. This is a song that ought to, to buoy your hearts." All of you, he's writing to everybody in the church and, and them together, saying all of you, you ought to be encouraged by this song. Yeah, for as David says, again, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And, and, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's he saying? He's not saying, 
you need to be really, really good so you can earn God's blessing. <laughs> That's not, that doesn't fit the context of First Peter. It doesn't fit the context of Psalm 34 at all. It's, 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 he's not trying to scare Christians into being less evil. You cannot out God's grace. But, but, but that's not to say that your sin doesn't affect you and, and doesn't affect your enjoyment of the blessings He secured for you in Christ. So we should, we should actively turn away from evil, we, including evil speech. And we've, again, like we're alluded to in those, in those opening exhortations, I mean, the tongue, I heard of, the tongue is like the Swiss Army knife of sin. It's got all these different little ways in which it can be used for evil. From insults, lies, blasphemy, gossip, backbiting, false teaching, impure words, slander, boasting, on and on and on. And we should, we should actively do good and seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because we don't want to do anything to blur the incredible blessings that are, are given to us, to the righteous in Christ. And so, this is what he, he's saying. As David, as David pens those words, he's it's not words that are intended to be any kind of threatening message, like you better, uh, we better keep shape up or God's going to turn against us. No, he's reveling in the fact that God is preserving him and blessing him. And this is what Peter is doing with this. And so it, 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 there is a connection between sin and our enjoyment of God's blessings. I, let me just quote from the a Gospel Primer for Christians. I've quoted this book in different places, but just listen to how this writer is giving summary to what, how the Scriptures deal with uh, this issue. He says, When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as He graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, God feels no wrath in His heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me and He longs for me to repent and to confess my sins to Him so that, uh, so that, then, that, so that He might show me the gracious and forgiving love that he has that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he already has forgiven me, and when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of my confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins, and he is grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I am not receiving the fullness of His love for me. Even since chastisement into my life, but He does so because He is for me, and He loves me, and He disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and here and I stand. Thank you, Jesus. So, that, that fits to me with the tone of First Peter here. He he goes from all these examples of worst case relationships and being reviled and, and, and where the world is opposed to us and then he breaks forth in this hopeful hymn. And he, and he says, God is, God is for us. God is for us. Even when enemies attack us, he's, He is for us. Well, as we think about the good life, as individuals and even as a church, it's easy to simply think in terms of what we want. That's how we tend to think. So we can, we can grow discontent or we can complain when we don't get that, when we don't get what we want. Because that's the standard for us. And, and in so doing, what we're really doing is we're judging God based upon His willingness to give us what we don't want. 
and we're accusing him of wrongdoing. But listen, God often doesn't give us the things that our hearts are set on. Oftentimes, because our hearts are so set on them. They may be good things, but they can be dangerous to us if our hearts are looking to them for ultimate meaning and fulfillment. And so God sometimes responds to us in ways that are good, but it may not feel good at the time. Because He loves us and, and because He is good, He keeps us from those things that fight for the, for the place in our hearts that only He's to have. And I heard an illustration like this. Imagine a child running into the house one summer afternoon, just like now, saying to his mom, Mommy, I'm hungry. I want a candy bar. I want a soda. I want a donut. I want a bowl of ice cream. I want all of that. And then the mom says, Well, here, let me make you a peanut butter sandwich and some apple slices. And There's a good chance that that kid's not going to run out of the door with a smile on his face and run to his neighbor's, his friend's, house next door and bust in and say you won't believe what a great mom I have (laughs) I asked for junk food and instead she gave me things that were much better for me now it doesn't happen instead child is more likely to complain to the mom I didn't I don't want peanut butter and apples I wanted candy and coke and why don't why can't I have ice cream but at this moment the child doesn't think his mom is this model of parental goodness and, and so it is for us, church. Our confidence in the goodness of God shouldn't be confused with, the, with an assumption that because He is good, He'll give us everything that our hearts are set on. By His grace, He sometimes frees us from the kind of the small confines of our little definition of what's good and so that we can experience bigger and more satisfying good things that He's planned for us. And so he, it's, it's grace that in, invites us to good that we never imagined, that we never deserved, that we, and we have not earned. Eternal good. And so it's nice. It, it, it is nice when things are comfortable and easy in our lives as a church. It's, it's better to come to, a, to the place, though, where we no longer need those things to feel best, blessed by God. And so sure, God does bless us with physical things and every physical blessing we have, it's to point back to God as the one who gives those things for us to enjoy so we don't bemoan those things. We're people of enjoyment. We enjoy all the blessings that God gives us. But the good God promises to us isn't a circumstance, it's not a situation, it's not a status. The good He promises to us is Himself. And we go back to where we began Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's one of the good life. We look to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us um, to not evaluate our lives and whether we're, quote, living the good life, whether we are enjoying your blessing just simply by the, the evaluation of what we want in our lives right now. Help us not to fix our evaluation of goodness and blessing to circumstances and, and physical things, but help us to orient our understanding of, your, of, of goodness to you. And we, we 
whatever, to whatever level we've been blessed with material things and we have been extraordinarily as a church, as individuals in this church in ways that most of the world doesn't know and, so, and we can yet still be discontent and we can still grumble and complain. But we've been blessed extraordinarily. And yet, regardless, even if all those things are taken away, we have the assurance that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that never goes away. And so whatever, whatever comes, Lord, whatever, whatever we walk through, whatever, whatever valley we walk through, whatever fire, whatever uh, a flood we have to cross, Lord, we, we can, can be confident, Lord, that, that, um, that you are good. We can taste and we can see, even hiding in a cave, cold, damp, dark cave, lives threatened, we can say, Lord, you are good. Blessed are all who take refuge in you. And so, Lord, as we who have been blessed in ways that no one else has, to bless others in ways no one else can, may we say, Lord, as we're going to sing, Lord, how can we keep from singing your praise? And so give us breath in our lungs and, 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 and strength to our voices, God, to, to declare and to sing together for the, for the glory of your name and for the edification of this church body as we declare your goodness to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.